podcast was recorded on September 28, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Double Line Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, everybody, welcome to uh, The Sherman Show. I'm here with my host, uh, co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, today we have a special guest from Southern California, Meb Faber. I'd say it's great to be here, but we're in my office, so it's great for you guys to be here. Glad to join you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the few uh, rare times we actually commute places around here, so... uh, we're in y'all's office downtown? Whereabouts? Right, so we're downtown in the Wells Wells Fargo building. And so, um, you know, it's that classic uh, 15-mile commute. Could be 15 minutes, could be 15 hours. So uh, the, well, the, the joys know, of Southern California. You know, you guys got a bigger company, but we certainly optimize here. I joke with my partner, Eric, and we live a couple blocks from each other. And it's like two miles from the beach, right? Very intentional course. But I always tell him, I say, we got to move closer to the beach. And he says, Meb, what are you talking about? He's like, I want to get away. I, I, want, I want a separation of church and state. He's like, if it's too close and... Then we kind of had, we joked on our podcast, we had this dream office open up on the pier, but it was like triple what we pay now, but perfect, right on the Manhattan Beach Pier. And the company that ended up getting it is also called Cambria. Have you guys ever seen this? You've probably seen this local, but it's, uh, they do granite tabletops. And so I had a buddy email me once and he said, hey, Meb, congrats on the new office. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he sent me a photo and I've never been so upset in my life. <laughs> anyway, but, but the good news is no one knows what they do and they, they must spend $50 million a year on advertising. If You'll see it now. Every single sporting game behind home plate, Cambria, and there's like a lion. So we're, we're trying to piggyback off the name recognition now. But yeah, maybe, maybe you should work on your logo, too. Maybe you should somehow incorporate uh, that, that into your, uh, your I, logo. It's a color change. So we're kind of bluish, greenish, white, and then uh, they're black and orange. So I think that's a great idea. Yeah, well, black and orange, I mean, it'd be good advertising in San Francisco, right? Yeah. San Francisco yeah. Giants. So uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got in here. I mean, I've heard about the biotech stories and everything, but let's talk about you know the various places you've been. You've, you've lived in Colorado, from what I, what I pick up. Mm-hmm. You've been in D.C. Um, what made you ever leave Lake Tahoe as well? Uh, I guess if you're going to settle, Manhattan Beach isn't a bad place. But uh, give us a little bit of the insight into that. Um, is it just career hopping? You know, I mean, uh, so L.A., it's funny. Had you told me a decade ago or 15 years ago, I guess now, that I'd be living in Los Angeles, I'd say you're crazy. You know, I grew up partially Colorado and North Carolina, and my visions of L.A. as a child were um, not that uh, positive. You know, my, my prejudice Um yeah, I thought it was this huge city and, and just dirty and smoggy and everything else. But um, well, anyway, it was back then, too. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, well, Denver was, too, growing up. I remember the downtown. It was just this gross brown cloud. Anyway, like most people, it's a windy road. I mean, I, I was a, my father was an aerospace engineer. I started out school in aerospace, quickly learned that wasn't about being an astronaut. So I transitioned to biotech, which I loved and still love, but, but has become more of a hobby. But it started out as a biotech equity analyst, and this was in the early 2000s, so a really exciting time. 
um, for both biotech as well as for investing. You had the internet bubble. You had uh, the genome being sequenced by Solera and the government. So a lot of fun stuff going on. Um, and biotech stocks also at a bubble. Most of them, you know, probably down 80% on the index like the NASDAQ. But I had taken a job while going to grad school um, down the road at Johns Hopkins um, in D.C. And then moved out to San Francisco to be um, to live, live, live in San Fran. I picked one of the few places that had both great biotech and investing. And uh, then moved to Tahoe with a... So I started gravitating more towards the pure investing side and further away from biotech, largely because I couldn't find a job. But then went to Tahoe with a group that was starting up a CTA, Commodity Trading Advisor. Um, that eventually blew up and loved the time in Tahoe. So I really call it a glorified um, uh, ski bum time. Yeah. Granted, I got up at 5 in the morning, but uh, the, the beauty of that was I got to leave by 1 p.m. in the afternoon and go catch a few runs. And, uh, and then eventually came down here to start Camry. And one of the reasons I chose L.A. was because I had a college roommate that lived here. And in Manhattan Beach, and I used to come visit, and I was like, this is the land of milk and honey. Yep. It's like all of my prejudices <laughs> were wrong, um, and this is a great place. So I said, we're going to try it for a year, and that would have been in 2006, maybe. Uh, so it's been a, a fun, windy road, and you know, starting an entrepreneur-style startup has been great, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, so let's talk about that. How did, how did you get into that area of wanting to be the entrepreneurial type? It's obviously taking a risk coming back down here and finding the land of milk and honey, as you call it. But how did, how did you get to that point of saying, this is really, I want to take a risk, start this thing, be my own boss? And how did, that, how did that evolve? I think it was kind of decided for me. You look back and you, know, you could easily say how it's like fate or whatever else. But I mean, I've interviewed at, at dozens of hedge funds and other types of wealth management shops. And the laundry list, I mean, it's kind of was the death knell for any hedge fund that I interviewed at because they're either we're going to go blow up in the next year, go out of business or all the partners were going to go to jail. So there's a list of like <laughs> six, seven hedge funds and I'm not kidding. And you would recognize the names that I interviewed at over the years in New York, San Francisco, et cetera, that all of those things happened. I mean, people went to jail for um, selling meth people. I mean, like there were some, one of the top macro Hedge fund managers of all time funded this start funded this fund, and then the guys bought up eighty percent of the float of all these stocks and didn't tell anyone. So while they was, were on meth, or? yeah, no, no, totally unrelated. And so I have like a dozen of these stories, and I, I mean, I should write a book about it. It's pretty funny, but so I think it's kind of decided for me. And and you know, you look back and you say, was that you know really. Um, you know, was it you kind of picking your own path or was it, you know, just the, the randomness of life? It's a little bit of both. And so, you know, I had developed a lot of ideas, a lot of concepts, um, probably the hardest way possible, which was kind of reinventing the wheel because never went through the more traditional programs, you know, of say coming out of a Goldman two year program or getting a CFA or getting an MBA and learning. So I kind of like invented, a, started a lot of this from scratch but at least came from a new perspective. And so there's a lot of ideas we had that were um, quite a bit different. But so I'd met my partner, Eric, and he said uh, he'd come from the investment banking VC legal side, kind of transactional M&A, and wanted to start an asset management business. We didn't really know what that was going to look like. So originally it started out with private hedge funds. And eventually, uh, you know, as we started writing and, and publishing, realized that there were some probably some better structures out there. I mean, trying to the nightmare, I'm mean, just thinking of it now, of trying to give people these 60-page PPMs and sign up and be accredited versus you know a lot of the structures today, like an ETF or a mutual fund, the ease of buying. And there's some downsides too, of course. But you know, so the business evolved over the years from private funds into more public funds, and we're now probably 90% ETF, 
excuse me, ETF assets. But uh, yeah, it was certainly a long, windy road. It's it's uh, interesting to hear. So we've got uh, you know your background in biotech, um, you know being a uh, skier, a surfer, and the likes, and partnering with the VC M and A guy, yeah. right? How, well, he, how do you get to asset management and become like an RIA type and, and running those type of uh, structures from, from that collaboration? Here's one of my favorite stories, and you're one of the very few that have heard this because it's been on. We do due well, diligence. Our, our 15 listeners are going to hear it too. As <laughs> we well, do. So. We, you know, we did a lot of the due diligence. Like, well, we get these 50 page due diligence DDQs from these big shops, right? You know, the calipers of the world, um, you know, where we'll fill these out. And there's always a question how did you meet, you know, your partner? What's the origin story? And we met through a common friend. <laughs> And the joke was that we um, met through our friend Craig, so Craigslist. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. and we never tell them. I was like, met through a common friend, but you know, Eric had been online looking for something or other. Like this was Craigslist, was kind of early days. This is and, when it wasn't creepy to be on. Craigslist, yeah, right? it wasn't yeah. wasn't man searching for man. But we were we were. I think he was, and I post my resume on there. I mean, no one posts their resume on Craigslist. I mean, certainly, I, I don't think so, and I don't even remember ever doing it. But I got an email and said, hey, we should chat. You know, you see me like I have an interesting background. And we just hit it off from the get-go. And, um, I mean, how random and fortuitous. And that's the beauty of life, right? And I was actually going to, back to uh, join a $15 billion shop in Palo Alto. And, I mean, I took like a 70% pay cut, maybe, <laughs> to live at the beach for a year. And, and my, my entire family basically just, you know... Um, told me I was an idiot for about a year and wouldn't talk to me and um, but it it worked out eventually took a while <laughs> well a success I, 10 years in the making I guess I have to say when I quit my former employer and uh, went to start up with double line uh, I didn't tell my parents either it was around Christmas time and I remember my mom freaking out yeah. uh, by actually hearing that I'd quit my job because that was unfathomable. If you get a job, you work at a big corporation. It's, How could you ever, you know, leave that that corporation? Right? It's a different generation. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you look at the, our parents' generation, and it's a bunch of lifers. I mean, you look around at our friends and this kind of even anyone probably under fifty today, and. How many people do you know that's been in the same job for their whole lives? But back then, it was much more about security. You got to define uh, benefit pension. That's right. Which basically doesn't exist anymore. Well, they're you all know. bankrupt, is why. Yeah. yeah. And so, all these, you know, it's just such a cultural difference where, I mean, we'll talk, we'll see resumes from people that are 30 and they've had six, seven different jobs. And it's, they, it's not seen as much of a, as kind of a black eye as it would have been back then. And right. so, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a generational sort of cultural shift. I know the one thing I noticed about getting, you know, the, as you said, the younger generation resumes now is that there's not this stare of the one page anymore. Because when you have six or seven previous employers, it's really hard to adhere to that single-sided one page. So uh, yeah. it used to be you had to have the VC in academia if you had the multiple pages. But mm-hmm. um, So <clears throat> you guys got together. You met through this mutual friend named Craig, mm-hmm. um, you know, the guy that makes a lot of lists. Um, so talking about lists, you know, what, what formulated the investment philosophy? Was it the brainstorm? Was it the mutual experiences? Is it collaborative writing? How did you get to the stage of just finding that this is the way we're going to approach the investment world? Um, you know, it's a combination, you know, bootstrapping a company. It's very tempting in the early days to take kind of all comers. You know, if you do a separate account, somebody says, I want to open up an account with a million bucks or whatever it may be, but I need to customize and do all these things. And it's really hard in the early days to turn down assets and also assets from what you know will be a very difficult client. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, eventually you have the ability to kind of parse that and, and make those decisions. But um, 
didn't know what we wanted to be when we were growing up at, at that point. I had a handful of ideas, all very similar to what we do now, but some of those germinated later. Some of them took you know, 10 years to really become a holistic philosophy. But most everything that we've done is still grounded in the roots of concepts that are 100 years old. So value investing, going back to Ben Graham. Trend following goes back to Charles Dow. There's nothing really that new. I mean, it's the implementation and the specifics and, and potentially the narrative. Um, but we, like, we didn't start, start as a pure you know, income shop or a dividend focus or whatever it may have been. And it's evolved a lot. But um, you know, our criteria that now that we talk a lot about is you know, for us to launch a product, it has to be something that we believe in which usually means there's a lot of research, there's a lot, you know, decades, hopefully, of evidence-based or academic understandings and, and, and common sense. Uh, it has to be something we want to put our own money into. That's a big kind of uh, check the box. You know, I put 100% of my publicly traded um, investments into Cambria and Cambria funds. And then the, the most challenging part is always, is it something anyone wants? And so right. we have a couple strategies where I'm like, this is the best idea ever. Let me guess. They have the lowest amount of AUM across your Well, and we haven't even launched some of them. And so, yes. And so some of them, I said, but no one will care. No one will want this. And that's also part of the challenge of being a public asset manager. And we probably talk more about this later, too, is that is is being able to um, be sustainable and and be able to deal with the flows in and out and try to make sure that people aren't doing their own worst enemy. But it's hard. So anyway, so when we started, you know, we had a couple ideas. I mean, grounded really in trend following. That was kind of the the philosophy from the beginning that that's still from your cta days is that kind of where yeah your your first passion yeah the first kind of and and a lot of um i think buffett talks a lot about this you know he's like value investing like you're born with it or not you know the philosophy and which i don't think is quite true but 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 in general he's like it takes it's like an inoculation it takes to some people and it doesn't for others and for me that's always been trend following um now there's plenty of other ideas and concepts we agree with and and think uh, make a lot of sense, but but trend following has always been kind of, at least for me personally, emotionally, kind of the core starting point. Yeah. Well, I, there's a couple things you said there. One is um, I, I always like to pull down the data from Fahman French's website or Ken French's website, just looking at the factors. And, um, you know, I, I like to blindly show them to people, and this is going to ruin my interview process going forward. But um, a lot of people come out of business school and you show them, here's, I'll give them the four lines here's market, here's size, here's value, here's momentum. You know, we can argue trend versus momentum, but the gist is there. And you pl- plot just the growth of a dollar back to that. And you ask people, especially what school they went from or came from, you know, which line is which? And, you know, it's amazing. Number one's always market. Mm-hmm. You know, these efficient market people, which as an active manager, we have to, dis- we have to reject that hypothesis or, or we should be out of business. But, um, you know, value is typically very high in there. Size next. And then momentum typically gives us the last um, thing which it's completely the opposite right. of course and so this is the idea of there being uh, th- there being kind of this behavioral side is that you get compensated for the trend may not persist you know there's argue- arguments uh, on why there is that premium but I-, I do find that amazing and coming back to the other thing is that you're talking about products for people and wait, wait, so, so just pause real ahead. quick I'm okay. going to interject something because in, a lot of listeners and investors don't realize that but but the market, it, if you define passive the way that it's been defined historically, simple market cap investing, right? S&P 500, essentially the market cap weighted index. The, you invest in the biggest companies by size. 
that's a trend-following index. And most people don't really think of it that way. And they say, what are you talking about? Trend-following doesn't it's work. It's the biggest momentum strategy in the world. the biggest world, momentum right? strategy right. is literally right. the definition right. of the market. It is right. price times shares outstanding. Right. right. You know, you ask a lot of people, you know, and particularly people not involved in investing, you say, you know, how is the S&P, well, SP is a bad example. How is the market cap weighted determined? And they say, well, you know, earnings or revenues or sales. They say, no, none of those are a part of the equation. It's simply, does a company get bigger, which is mostly just price. Yep. Anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, no, no, I mean, uh, I get it too because, you know, and then, then you have these markets, which especially the last few years, uh, the cap weighted indexes, indices have dominated, you know, not only just asset flows, which is you know, flows beget more price behavior, more momentum, but it's this thing where people just have just kind of almost given up in some capacity and just said, well, this, I can buy it cheaply, it's just the market, it beats everything. And when you come back to this, we'll, we'll get into valuation. It's it's agnostic to valuation. Typically, you know, they are more overvalued. And I think you know, Robert Knott did a very good job of, of getting people onto this over time about you know thinking about disconnecting price with the weight allocation. But this is where active managers can really shine. If you're worried about valuation, um, I would expect when we get to frothier type of markets and expensive markets through history, that active managers, by definition, should underperform because they are going to pay attention to the things that are in, in terms of valuation. They're going to hold higher levels of cash. They're going to look for better opportunities. And so it's almost like the market ex- itself is redefining the way people are thinking about it until you get a correction, if indeed that ever comes again. Well, now's a good example. I got an email today from um, a listener or reader and he said, you know, Meb, you talk a lot about in your podcast how almost any weighting methodology beats market cap over time, whether it's equal weighting, whether it's revenue weighting, whether it's value, whatever it may be. But he says, I looked up the, and he's, you know, it's an ETF comparison. So they've only been around for, let's call it a decade of these two ETFs. I used to, I compared equal weight to market cap weight and equal weight hasn't beat market cap. And I said, my friend, you know, many <laughs> over of these, this one single time yeah, period, that one cycle, right, right, you got to remember right. that many of these anomalies, what we call them or, or edges can go a decade or more of underperformance. And that, you know, creates part of the opportunity because people forget and it's got to wax and wane to really make it an opportunity in the first place. And I said, you know, but most people think in terms of quarters and years, not yeah. certainly not decades. Yeah, no, it's true. And um, it, so this is where I was going earlier is that we get from clients a lot. You know, I just want your best ideas. And so I like to tell people, like, what is your best ideas portfolio? I'm like, well, by definition, we don't have worst ideas portfolios. Yeah. They're, they're set for risk profiles and the like. But you tell them, OK, this is what we think is the best idea. And they say, well, I don't want that. Yeah. No, no, that's your best. No, but I want something different. Or it's like, I want to have this, but you've got to constrain these pieces. So it's always amazing to, to look at people's desires, wants, and, and needs, uh, but Here, they, they get stuck in the behavioral side about it. Too. Here's a great example is Joel Greenblatt, you know, author of Little Book That Meets the Market, did uh, Gotham Funds for a long time, uh, and just launched Gotham Mutual Funds. But he had a website, I don't know if you guys remember this, called Formula Investing, I think, was the name of it. And he allowed readers of his book to go on and screen for um, the companies that fit the magic formula, right? And then they could track them and they could either invest on their own or they could have uh, whatever Gotham's company was, Formula Investing, do it for them or they could, they could do it on their own, but they could also choose to exclude stocks out of the screen for whatever reason. And the original idea was, hey, maybe you work at um, Google and you don't want Google in your portfolio because you don't want to... But he said... 
all across all instances, the people that excluded stocks, those outperform the bucket that they didn't exclude because people, you know, would often say, Oh, I like this, you know, this is this this, you know, Facebook or whatever it might be resonates with me, but whereas this iron maker and you know nebraska i don't i have no interest in that whatever it may be but the biases that came out you know ended up hurting them as it always does which we would not which we would expect but just a funny recent example of of how people get in their own way yeah i mean uh, it is always challenging and you know that's why um in a lot of things that we've worked on over the years, Sam and I together is in the commodity world and the equity world has been very systematic mm-hmm. um, because again, uh, we come from more macro background, fixed income where I think there are, you know, the macro is more contemporaneous there than in, let's say the commodity markets or the equity markets that take these long views. And so again, it doesn't say there's not place for systematic and other strategies. It's just, again, been our experience. Uh, but thinking about that, what really, when you start to think about a process and doing research, where do you start with your data sets? I mean, you talk about these long-term data sets and finding them. How do you get access to a lot of this data? Well, when I was in my mid-20s, the way that I would get access to it is through lots of really generous friends that were at Stanford Business School that would share their login. <laughs> um, thank you, Stanford. More than happy to... Give a speech there to to, um, to offset compensate. the fees. Yeah, <laughs> um, but you know when you're young, a lot of these databases are expensive. Cost yeah. tens of thousands of dollars. Many of them. Um, the good news now is that, and that's the biggest hindrance for a young Quan is just getting access to that stuff. And you know the good news now is so one many um, business schools or libraries have access to some of these and they're free, and so you don't have to sneak in like I did. But um, the uh, the good news is, is every day there's more and more data. So you mentioned French Fama. We get emails all the time. I say, look, they have data going back to the 20s, the 20s maybe. Yeah, I think it's 1920. And for international for decades, and you can parse all this and do all these studies you want. Um, you know, there's a number of paid databases that, you know, if you could find your local academic who is a professor and say, hey, look, I'd love to partner up with you on this study. I want to do this, which is what we did in the early days. And then we pay for a bunch now. I mean, we paid... Tens of thousands of dollars. And he offered for, a co-author a piece with yeah, them, or at least or at least be the data person yeah. behind the scenes. And yeah. so there's a lot of good ones out there. And so now you have more and more. And so I mean, back in the I remember taking the old, what was it, the Ibbotson annual yearbook and yep. copying that by hand because uh, it had monthly returns back to 1900. So all of a sudden now you have free stocks, bonds, yeah. bills, everything else. Yeah, that Ibbotson Singfield database was yeah. awesome. Yeah, and I mean, it's, that, and it's a great way of getting corporate spreads, default premium. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff in that. CRB had an annual yearbook back in the yes. day. Yeah, um, and the, I remember being so disappointed the first time I looked in the annual CRB because the majority of the book, I mean, there's obviously the returns and everything, was if you traded this spread on this exact day right. and held it for 16 days, mm-hmm. but then you did the converse of that for 12 days, and it's like, it was, it was, it was very data mined. Mm-hmm. Now, the data was also there. I think it was trying to help people, but it was this quintessential data mine of like, why should you hold these two mm-hmm. spread contracts over 16 days during this part of the season? Well, you should have. Of course. <laughs> and and you, the, the answer there is actually correct. You should have. Yeah. What, what, what reason to do it going forward? So that's another thing. When thinking in the quant world, um, you, know, you have these databases. You find these robustness tests. or You're seeking robustness across these processes. Um, how do you convince yourself that going forward, uh, these strategies should have merit? That's the so hardest thing with the quant. So right? it's a, first, let me just mention, we, we actually did a blog post because we get so many inquiries about the data. It's, it's called something like, on my blog, and we can post a link on your show notes, it's called Free Data Sources. And it links about, lists about a dozen or 15 of them that people can access. So we'll send it to you. But, okay, great. Um, we'll post that for you. So the thing, I mean, look, you, you got to try to use a little humility and common sense. And so the first part of that about being a quant, and this is one of the beauties, is, is most quants, and we're kind of a quant light, 
you know, the first lesson is have a respect for history. So, you know, and you talk to most financial advisors and, and for example, 2008, if, if you were not a student of history, 2008 would have surprised you because he said, oh my God, all these asset classes that weren't correlated all went down. I can't believe that's never happened in history. Well, yeah, it happened in the 30s, for example. Right. Um, the U.S. equity market declined over 80%. And then be able to point out that, oh, look at these examples, even recently of, of markets that have declined over 60, 80%, Greece, Cyprus, Russia, Brazil, yada, yada, over and over, right? And so having an appreciation for what's happened. And it, but, but even then, you know, knowing that you got to kind of smile and say, we only have 100, maybe 150 years of kind of real data. Uh, and then you go back, you know, pre-1900, and it gets worse and worse by, by decade. And then with equities even, the Chris database, that takes you, what, to the 60s or 70s, right. depending on what you're doing. Well, a lot of people think post-World War II is, is really more yeah. emblematic of the, um, kind of the current economy, although it wasn't as globalized. I mean, there's a lot of different issues there. And so a lot of the ideas, you know, we try to have a little common sense and say, you know, um, does this make sense? Could I explain it to a 15-year-old? But then also, and here's one area where I think so many people go wrong, is fully expect the phrase, the worst drawdown is always in your future. By definition, it has to be, right? And so Cliff Asnes of AQR talks about this. He says, like, we often take our quant strategy and take the drawdown and, and double it. Right. You know, That's kind of what we could expect, worst case scenario. So we'll devise these strategies or publish them, and it has something like a 10 or 15% drawdown. And people are like, oh my God. I was like, well, just, just FYI. A good example was a buy and hold asset allocation portfolio that people had tested to the 70s going into 2008 at a worst drawdown of like 20%. Well, all of a sudden that was 50 in 2008, you know? And so having a little humility, at least understanding what's possible, this is particularly, I think, useful right now as you look around at the landscape of the U.S. opportunity set, you know, from a quant perspective, it's it's pretty slim. And so, um, so that's one. So l- looking back to history, you know, and, and realize also that, you think about all the tests that people do and studies and how many 90% of them are bad results or not that interesting to get thrown in the wastebasket, right? So it's only the good ones that get published. And there's a lot of studies by Vanguard and et cetera that, that will publish these studies and say, hey, look, here's the back test and then up to the back test publication date and then here's performance out of sample forward. And it's always worse. And I mean, it's, it's not always it's worse. Not, it's not as good typically. Right. right. So um, it's we, we have one that We have one that we found and, and one of the guys on our team uh, loves to troll it around every once in a while. And um, it was uh, produced by uh, SockGen. It's a volatility strategy, and it went live in 2009, of course. And it's, it's, it looks extremely data-mined. It's beautiful. has a cute, great positive skewness. I mean, it's, it's low volatility. And then as soon as they launched it, I mean, to the exact date, that was the peak in it. It never reached that high water mark again. And in fact, it's one of those down 90 plus percent type mm. of things. So, I love um, it. but it's, it's always just a reminder or, uh, you know, when, when you're data, data testing and you're going through and, you know, the analyst gives you the sharp ratio of 10, it's like you're front running the strategy. <laughs> well, and there's a great, there's a great stat that we did a post on our blog and it's something it's called where have all the sharp ratios of one gone. And this was focused on the CTA space, but it shows this beautiful uh, dot plot of, CTAs and their sharp ratios, and as they get older, it all you know the, there's basically none over one because eventually, if you survive, which is hard enough already, I mean that's the biggest compliment to any money manager is survival. Right. Um, is that you know it's it's really hard to generate, and and we've done a few posts on this. Wes Gray talked a lot about it, but the really difficulty of I mean a lot of people out there think that something twenty percent returns are easily obtainable, and and pretty soon you're you become the richest person in the world. 
Just right. that's the way compounding works. So, but 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 mentioning uh, kind of the back test. I mean, we've had a couple papers and publications where we published them, and then actually had kind of the best out of sample performance that happened afterwards, and then beca- they became very popular. Well, obviously they became popular because of the luck of the timing. Right. You know, had it been published a year later, people were like, well. No shit, Sherlock. I'm sorry, but it's it, it's very obvious that it you know you're you're so there's there's a little bit of that too. But I always I always like to show people that too is that you know because people you know they watch your strategy that we, we call it double line the ready aim 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 mm-hmm. aim mm-hmm. and eventually they fire and you're like oh man you're you're gonna buy at the top you know you just feel it right because they've just been sitting and watching it for so long and then they call you and say. How is this thing down 2%? Mm. And you're like, okay, you start to explain. So what I've actually liked to do over the years is actually create just a time series, like what the, like the normalized rate of return of the growth of the dollar. So just do a, do a time series regression, put some standard deviation bands around it, and watch the AUM. Mm. And this is endemic, not just of double-line strategies or you know, Cambria. It's, it's, it's just the nature of markets or human psychology, I believe. But what you'll find is people like to buy strategies at one and two sigma rich relative to trend, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's just a very simple uh, regression just using time series, you know, just assuming that linear trim. And, and, quite, you, and then they get upset because they went from the one and a half sigma event just back to trend. Do you, do you then share that with them? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's, by the way, but, I feel like it's kind of like shaming them where they're like, yeah. All right. Well, now you're just embarrassing me. But but it's true. You see this. But sometimes I mean, you need to be embarrassed. You know, the thing about it is you need to have the humility to say that. Look, you've got to have this tolerance of of things, and too, and not not everything can be above market all the time. Right? There's there's an academic paper, and you guys know this because um, that shows like eight thousand hiring and firing decisions of of uh, pension funds and institutions. And sure enough, they look at three year trailing performance of the fund that comes in and the, versus the fund <laughs> that comes out. And the fund that comes in has amazing three-year performance. Fund that comes out is underperformed. And, and then going forward, yeah. the following three years, they should have stuck with the old guy. Right. Because whether it was style or reversion or whatever it may have been, it's, they reverse. And, yeah. you know, it, it's astonishing how much it – I mean, people often, you know, look down upon the retail investor. And, and clearly they do this if you look at the time-weighted Morningstar flows. My favorite example um, in the 2000s was CGM. You know, they, I mean, they got a mutual fund manager of the decade, Ken Hebner. I mean, he made like 10% a year, but the average investor in dollar weight in that fund had negative returns okay. because after he did the up 70 year, everyone came in and then, you know, the drawdown happened, everything else. Anyway, um, I, can I, can I touch on something there sure. too? Because I, I think it's where you're going, but you, you said there's a lot I really of sh- have a path of where I'm going, by the way, these okay. conversations oh, yeah. just go down a well, rabbit hole. They well, never come out. If you didn't know, I'm clairvoyant, you know, <laughs> yeah. and therefore I know exactly where you're going. No, but you were mentioning the idea of it, it, shaming retail and we find the same thing in the institutional community and it, it's not to be offensive, but when you look at RFP demand. Um, out there in the marketplace, and you look across 15 consultants and you know 200 pension plans, they're looking for the same strategy at the same time. Mm. And so it's not you know there's the hiring firing. I agree with too that you know it's bad time and they should stick with it at times if you believe in processes. However, we see it too in like the fad, the hot trade. I mean, think what, about what after are, Swenson what, put out the Yale model, what, right? What are what are people looking at now? <laughs> well, uh, some of them, I guess, we're not in, you know, for yeah. that side. But um, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing is, you know, unconstrained, um, you know, maximum yield type of uh-huh. portfolios where, you know, they want the 3% drawdown, you know, want the 7% T-bill, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and where it's like, it's almost throwing your hands up in the air and saying, look, I don't know how to do the asset allocation. 
can you, Meb, please take care of it for me? And I'm sure you'd have a solution for that. Um, but it probably won't fit their parameters. And so I do find yeah, it it's, interesting. It's, it's, I would start a fund and put it in T-bills and just do a return of capital 7% per year. Right. <laughs> Guaranteed, <laughs> Guaranteed 7%. 7%. So yeah. we actually joke. I mean, there yeah. are managed payout funds right. that you know target certain amounts. Doesn't and Mario Gabelli run a lot of those? A too? bunch yeah, of people yeah. do. Right. And, yeah. and we had joked we were going to do some ETFs that, do, that, that literally had the number of the ticker was like 4, 8, 10. <laughs> And just return capital because it's so nonsensical. Right. But, but, yeah. but you know, if you look back to the 2000s, you're right. So post-2000, it was endowment model. Mid-2000, it was the BRICS, emerging markets, real estate. Post-2008, tactical, of course. Or, or, risk, CTA, or CTA, CTA, tail risk funds. Monster right? year in 08. Yep. And then in this period, it's been a lot of kind of yield or sort of yield ideas, alternative yields. Right now, I don't know. Cryptocurrencies. Well, people, oh, crypto, it's a whole other world. Yeah. I think we could spend a long time. But yeah. like, people come to us and it's like, what could you do if I wanted to build a yield portfolio? You know, For comfort risk, you talk to someone and say, we think we'd do four. No, no, that doesn't work. Okay, what, so let's change some of the parameters to get there in this market. No, 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 no. I need that risk profile, but I need seven. And you're just like, I mean, it's just the disconnect too, and we call it the you know the need versus you know reality portfolio. I need to have seven, like the DB plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't raise taxes locally uh, to fund this thing, so I've got to get it out of the um, out of the investment portfolio. But what's the old Texas hedge? You can buy the calls, sell the puts, and buy a ticket to Nicaragua. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. somewhere without extradition. We 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 allow the Texas hedge to not trade it one, but just when people come out like, have you looked at these two things? It's like it is the same trade. Yeah, exactly. You are long. Tra- we, we joked about this about unconstrained funds a few years ago, where people are just long credit and short rates. And so, essentially, what you're trying to do is clip the default premium. Um, they think interest rates are going up, and so they're thinking they're going to make money on both sides. And that's great until you realize that's very highly correlated. Spreads mm-hmm. tend to be, you know, uh, negatively correlated with interest rates, which means they go in the same direction in returns. And so people didn't realize until you have a credit problem in 15, for instance, the second half of 15, where credit goes down, all of a sudden you have this rate rally on the back of it. It's like, wait, you mean both sides lose at the same time? Yeah. We, we used to joke that that was the, the quintessential Texas hedge out there. Um, but look, in certain markets, it works. It, it works right now. It's worked for the last couple of weeks, um, which you know some people extrapolate that over a long period and of time. And I think if, I, if, if someone had to ask me, they said, Matt, what, what would surprise you most about thinking about these correlation ideas would be something that's like a universal truth that in the next crisis doesn't become true. So 08 surprised people because real estate, commodities, foreign, all that stuff didn't diversify. Right. You know, the thing that would probably surprise me and surprise everyone um, would be if U.S. stocks and bonds both puked at the same time. And, and, that's, and they could. They could. And they could. You know, they have rarity. in the past. Too, they have, right? but it's rare. You right. know, they have a pretty good batting average, but... Right. But to see them both get walloped would be, I think, cause a lot of pain. Well, I think also when you talk about 08, people say, oh, diversification doesn't work. There's a lot of papers written that diversification's there until you need it, and, mm-hmm. it's, and it goes out the door. But I would, I would classify 08 more as a liquidity problem, mm-hmm. too. And when liquidity evaporates, that means the system isn't functioning. So mm-hmm. everything must go down. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that... There's no really good way to hedge yourself against liquidity except to stay liquid, mm-hmm. right? And try to be able to buy those assets. But uh, so I think it's a it's a different type of market. So uh, let, let's kind of shift gears just a little bit. So uh, you guys have been in the business a while now. You're getting uh, notoriety, very popular, you know, podcast. People downloading your papers, reading your books. 
I noticed you giving them away for free. I think if you mm-hmm. look back, I probably got one of those maybe you know probably seven or eight years ago. So uh, if you go back through your database, you you may find my name. Um, but you know, where, where do you see yourselves going on on a go forward basis? I mean, you're successful in the ETF place. It's a great place to be. Huge burgeoning business. Uh, what do you guys see yourselves doing and, and contributing on a go forward basis? You know, I mean, look, it, it is you look at kind of the shop where we are now. Seven people. We have zero sales. Uh, or marketing side. So the the content generation is kind of a necessary, like a way to bootstrap the company. So that is your sales. Yeah. Content is sales. It's it's kind of the... Or at least marketing presence. Yeah. I mean, it's the inbound where we just put out a bunch of content and people find us. And so hopefully, kind of our thought in general too is that hopefully they're going to invest with us because of our message and become sort of pre-understood on the methodology and we try to spend a lot of time on education, you know? And you may not agree with this, um, but but if you're going to invest in our funds, you understand our thesis. And so hopefully, hopefully, knock on wood, it's not as much hot money, right, where people are going to be just chasing the returns. But you never know. So, you know, I mean, I think, look, it's... Well, everybody's it, long-term until the market goes down. Yeah. That, that's the issue, right? And so, and we think a lot about that, and we can talk about that more in a minute, some, some behavioral ideas. So, I mean, we've kind of built this lineup. We have 10 funds. We'll probably settle in that mid-teen range. We always think that I'm never going to launch another fund, never going to write another book. But all of a sudden, we get another idea that just like it itches so bad, we kind of have to. And so we have a couple ideas that we think are still pretty interesting that that you know get us excited. But um, but yeah, at this point, it's kind of there's been kind of three stages. There was the bootstrapping the company. Then there was you know essentially becoming a, a small research boutique that specialized in a few areas, and now it's becoming a sustainable operation that can grow and you know go knock on wood. Hopefully, we'll, we'll cross a billion in assets um, this quarter, or hopefully before year end. But um, you do know there's only two days left in the quarter. Um, sorry, I, I, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll be October. Um, no, two days. That's fine. Yeah. We we need a we need a. 50 million allocation to cross. All right. So, um, but just to kind of grow the business and become sustainable because, you know, as you guys know that, you know, as you have some cash flows, you can start to do about some research ideas and, and things that just make life a little easier because the biggest thing that I would tell young people, particularly that want to start a fund and they see the pot of gold, at the end of the rainbow and all these people, particularly they're rushing into the ETF space. Say, Oh my God, look at that crazy fund that just raised a billion dollars. That is a terrible idea, by the way. Um, look how easy that is. I'm going to go launch an ETF. Well, the, the fun of managing the, the business of managing money is totally different from managing money. And the business of managing money is, you know, dealing with the SEC, who we love, by the way. Hello, SEC. Um, you know, dealing, we're big fans as well. Yeah. yeah. Sign, you know, signing forms all day and, you know, dealing with tax and audit and just the headaches of running a business. And it only gets harder and more complex the bigger you get. So, um, you know, I, I like to spend my time writing and researching and talking to people and coming up with ideas and all that sort of stuff. So being able to craft a business that, you know, lets you do things you want to be doing, because that's the whole point of life, right? Yeah. Not yeah. to not to be... Um, that's you know, why you're love, an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. You know, to not be right. holding to that. So we love it, and yeah. we got a great culture and crew here, and just kind of grow thoughtfully. So let me ask you one specific investment idea because I just saw it um, in a news article last week, and it won't be out in time, so we're not talking about it um, when it's live. But uh, the CBOE has now come up with the Fang futures, mm-hmm. and they're going to launch that in November. Um, do you think there is this, uh, you know, jealousy 
uh, in the futures market of the ETF market? And why do you think the rationale of coming up with this such narrowly defined, very myopic type of um, futures contract uh, to give someone, again, expo- here's, it's, here's, it's, it's here's five your- things and it also happens to be five other stocks. So it's going to be 10 stocks equally weighted. I'm going I'm to give you a simple answer. In the history of Wall Street, I think there's two types of firms. I think there's firms like Cambrian, I put double line in this bucket, where you're putting out products that you believe in, you work your ass off to make them the best possible products, you put your own money into them, um, and really you build a culture that these are things that you believe in. And then you have a lot of the firms, and I don't, I'm not shaming them for this, but that will put out whatever they can to capitalize and make as much money as they can on the themes of the day, on just what people will be investing in. And we could go down a laundry list of thousands of ETFs that are the stupidest ideas on the planet that no one should invest in. Well, the good thing about the FANG, and I haven't really looked at it, but I got to think the back test is good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just got to think it. You know. well, and I, then by, if the, by the time it launches, <laughs> right. if one of them falls out of bed, it can just be the fan. Yeah, or it can. Fa. Yeah, you, there's a certain probably cohort you can't drop out of there. But, um, but I'll let you figure that one out. But the thing is, is uh, what what about, you know, um, there was something that happened in the bond market. And, um, you know, recently there's a new ETF that came out where it was called, it's the Barclays Aggregate Enhanced Yield. And so it overweights the higher yielding things. It's like seven-minute abs. It's right. I mean, why would you do it in eight when you could do it in seven, right? Sorry. But uh, the thing is, is that um, it's, it's great because it launched really in the middle, you know, early in this year. And it went on the backdrop of one of the best credit cycles we've had, you know, in the last few years. And so it's quite amazing where now that people have seen the performance of that, oh, let's create an index off of it. So I feel like the index providers are going down some of these um, the pitfalls you have when building back tests, especially from a quant perspective. And they don't have to subject themselves to the robustness, the out of sample. It's just simply, oh, this stuff has worked for X number of years and therefore... Um, it will going forward. Yeah, I mean, look, you look at all the nonsense that comes out. I mean, there was just a GOP Make America Great Again ETF that just I came saw out. That. MAGA. Yeah, MAGA. Uh, the ticker was great, right? We could go. We, we actually did a contest a few years ago, and we said, people send in your ideas for ETFs, and the, the top three or four ideas we'll give a free Idea Farm subscription to, research service. So it's worth like 400 bucks. So we got like 200 ideas. Well, 150 of those were absolutely horrific. You know, it's the like, I hate Obama ETF or the, you know, whatever, just nonsense. And these thematic ideas that can raise a lot of money, but, you know, it's not a good, responsible, prudent investment over the long term. Um, However, there was a handful of pretty good ideas. And so uh, what won? What won the contest? Well, we didn't announce the couple that won because we ended up, I think, launched because we'd already like had some ideas. And so, oh, actually, that's a really cool idea. Why don't we do it? But if you look back at the list and it's on my blog, we'll post the show notes. I mean, half of them are now launched. You know, it's funny because someone somewhere thought that launching a fund based on a city would be a good idea. You know, so all of these things have since come out. Um, so, but, but going back to your original question, which was, you know, the futures ETF envy. I mean, it's always funny to me that people, like you see ETFs getting demonized in the media all the time. And Jim Rogers, who I love more than anyone, you know, talking about how ETFs can cause a crisis and it's going to be a huge mess. ETFs are like one fifth of mutual fund assets. You know, they are a, a, a little gnat, a little thing in the sand. If you look at most institutions, they have like 1% or less of their assets in ETFs. So like, it's a rounding error. And on top of that, ETFs are baskets of stocks. But futures should love ETFs because ETFs can own futures, and they do. Right, right. So they should, they should love them because it's only going to probably drive more assets anyway. 
Well, I, I realize we're sitting here, we're, we're getting close on time, and uh, Mr. Lau is sitting next to me and hasn't said a word yet. So I don't know if he's he was intimidated. Good. I saw him nod off for a while. Oh, okay. we, yeah, I've had my back yeah. to it. So, yeah. so uh, I, I want to pose, uh, you know, do you have any questions for Meb, or do you want to just go on to your favorite part of our podcast? No, I think it's uh, time to get on to my favorite time of the pod- podcast, if that's all right with you, Meb. Yeah, man, let's do it. All right, so I think you're somewhat familiar with the podcast, but what I'll do is just give a quick background. It's a game of word association. I'll name out a word or a phrase. And I will please, lose this game. There's if you no could, winner I, or loser, no, I, except for me, because I could just listen. <laughs> I think the, the, the viewers are both, or the listeners are both the winners and the losers. <laughs> this usually, so. All right, so what I'll do is I'll start off with Mr. Sherman, and then I'll pass it off to you, and then we'll just alternate thereafter. So the first one for Jeff, tax reform. Unlikely. Asset allocation. Oh, this is so hard for me. All right, one word. Irrelevant. Parentheses if done right. <laughs> uh, dollar. Uh, long, uh, long-term weaker. Fintech. Love it. Comfort food. Taco. Cape ratio. High and low. Depending on the country. <laughs> or the market. Or the sector. Yeah. Selfies, as in the photos. Irrelevant. <laughs> Selfie sticks. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, perfect. <laughs> uh, football. Troubled. And final one, hometown. Well, there's two. That's unfair. I, 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 one, native, word, native, one word. One word. Uh, Doesn't have to Denver. be. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed our Sherman show today with uh, Meb Faber. He was appreciative of giving us some time today. And as always, uh, we appreciate your feedback Um, on the show. You can uh, email us directly at fund or info at doubleline.com. Thanks again for tuning in. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. 
Copyright 2017, Double Line Capital.